Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the McClifford Podcast, the Irish Examiner. I hope we're all doing well this week. Now, we've just come through the decade of centenary commemorations of the revolutionary period, which of course ended with the formation of what's now the Irish Republic and the partition of the island occurred at the same time also. But what can we take forward from what was broadly considered, I think, as an appropriate period of remembering? One group who have a suggestion are descendants of some of those who formed the delegation that negotiated the Anglo-Irish Treaty in London in, as we know, October, November, December 1921. These descendants came together in recent years, as you'll hear, and they also include descendants of two big figures from the anti-treaty side, Carl Brewer and Harry Boland. They have an idea about a day of reconciliation designed to reach way beyond the divisions that opened up a century ago and take account of the Ireland we live in today. I caught up with them when they gathered recently for an event in Dublin. Carl, could you tell me who was your ancestor in the negotiations? My ancestor was Dermot Fawcett and he was appointed as a special technical advisor to Robert Barton. At that time, he was the first Consul General for the Republic to the United States, and he was requested, directed to come home to be part of the delegation uh, for the Anglo-Irish negotiations in London in October 1921. So that's my origin. That's where I come from. Uh, He had 11 children. He was born in Cork. Uh, He was born to a Protestant father and a Catholic mother. Mixed marriage back in those days, and his mum died uh, on the birth of her third child. And he and his older brother were basically left as orphans in the Blue Hospital or Greencoat Hospital, can't remember which what it was called. Um, and then uh, his father remarried, went to Bristol, remarried, and then went to the States and lived in the States. And he was brought up by his, his mother's mother, and she was determined that the two boys would be educated. So educated in the North Mon, was a schoolmate of Thomas McCurtain and Max Sweeney as well, Cahill, and very interested in industry and really one of the founders of the Cork IDA and he was known as the industry man. And um, so when the first all met, he was known as the industry man and, and he was sent to America to be the first consul general appointed by Griffith and de Valera. This is when the first all met in 1919. 1919. So he was sent... My father was born in the June and he was sent in the August, September, gone for two two years. And then he was asked to come back in September 1921 to be part of the delegation. Right. And did he take any role in the subsequent civil war? No, he didn't. He was pro-treaty. He felt it was a good stepping stone for Ireland and 
he, his friends in America, because of having spent two years in America, were very anxious about what was happening and were very disappointed. There were the two different factions in America at the time. And um, my grandfather was, no, he, was, he believed in peace and he believed that this was the right step. And it was a stepping stone to full sovereignty in due course. As it turned out to be, as we all know. And tell me this, uh, Carl, you were very much involved in the group of, of people whose ancestors were involved in negotiations uh, coming together and forming. How did that come about? Well, it came, it came about because we didn't know enough about our own grandfather. And six of us came together and we took on different functions. Six of your, your family? Six cousins. Right, yeah. Six cousins. Um, well, myself and my brother Ronan, um, Richard, who's here. No, not Richard. It was Willie, uh, Richard's eldest brother, Willie, who unfortunately passed in 2021. And he would have been delighted to have been here today. So six of us came together and we took different elements of our grandfather's background. And as a consequence of the research we did, actually, Dr. Morris Manning afforded us an opportunity to make our presentation of our research at the NUI in Dublin in 2019. And each of us presented to a group of historians the areas that we had been researching. Uh, there was a lot of secrecy and lack of information around my grandfather. And there was a lot of silence at home. And my, my father died when, in, when he was only 56 years of age. So I was the eldest of six. So it was very difficult for us to get it good information. So we were all very interested. But as as a consequence of the information that we discovered about our grandfather, we discovered all these names that we hadn't heard about and his diaries. Everything is in the Cork and County archives. So his archives were, were lodged there in right. 2019. I think it was 19 now. Yeah, 19, August 19, actually the same same month that Michael Collins was shot. The van with the boxes of all the papers travelled along the Cork Road uh, to the Cork archives through Bailden Law. And so as a consequence of all the names that we found and the information, we thought, my gosh, we should, in August 2020, we decided we would look at all the people who were involved and try and pull them together and do something to commemorate the Anglo-Irish Treaty because there was nothing on it and there was nothing planned and there was nothing in the programme, the centenary programme. So we came together and I think um, myself and a few others and we pulled the, the Collins um, ancestor, the uh, Cahal Brua ancestor, Ida Sigara. We, we pulled about 20 odd people together with coming from different families who had been involved to some extent, and then we decided we'd put a proposal to UCC to have a conference because there was nothing happening about what happened around the treaty itself, the negotiations, the delegations, the negotiations, all the stories about what happened, the human stories. And um, in doing that, uh, putting forward the, the idea of a conference, we also decided, and it was actually Michael, you suggested, Michael O'Mahony, who's here with us today, who's um, a relative of Michael Collins, said, Carol, it'd be really good to put a book together, a booklet, actually, it was called initially, of the people that we, we discovered had been involved in the delegation in some shape or fashion, whether it was on the various committees, whether they were working in the House, 
the, the houses, the cooks, the runners, the couriers, you name it. So we decided to put the book together, which is the the delegations, the men and women of the delegations, which yeah. included the British delegation as well. Absolutely, I have to say it's a, it's a, it's a fine book and very informative. And I, I think particularly because there has been, for various reasons, certain silences around the specifics of the treaty, but I think it's really illuminating. It is, um, it's, it's, it's a very well put together book, I have to say myself. But So that's how you came about that. Now, so, so, and then we, we decided we would do more than just the book. We decided we would do round tables on the families, the Griffith, Collins, um, the main players that people knew about and been involved in the treaty. And, and to extend the roundtables out then to the women actually involved and the differences that families felt, experienced growing up um, in, in homes where there was silence, there was no discussion. And I think my, yes, my brother Ronan um, at the Cork conference, we had a roundtable on trauma and the impact of trauma because most of the families involved carried the trauma down through the generations. As we know now through epigenetics and modern behavioural science, it passes through the generations and it leaves harm unless it's dealt with. So uh, it's been a journey and we're still on the journey because now we want to have a people's, an annual People's Day of Reconciliation. Yeah, and we're going to, we're going to come to that and thank you, Carol. Now, sitting beside you is um, Michael O'Mahony and Cahal McSweeney Brewer. And of course, you two gentlemen come directly from Michael. I, I, Michael, you'd be a grandnephew of Michael Collins? Yes, my grandfather was Johnny Collins, who would have been uh, 12 years older than Michael. He was born in 1878, Michael in 1890. And he was the uh, senior male, so he had the place in, in, in Woodfield at Sam's Cross in, in West Cork. Uh, he, was the, he was the owner of that at the time. And... I was, uh, during that time, based in Dublin. I was educated in Dublin. My mother, who, uh, who was a Kitty Collins, who was one of Johnny's children, one of the older ones, uh, was a teacher in uh, Cahill Brewer Street, as she always knew it, after my father had died. My father had been a, 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 a nabby actor and a, in the bank, and he had died when we were young. I was only eight. My mother went back to teaching in Cahill Brewer Street. So the name Cahill Brewer was more significant to me from age eight onwards because my mother went back teaching in, in Cahill Brewer Street uh, because that's what it was called. The Cahill Brewer Street was made up of the College of Catering. And of course, Cahill Brewer, Cahill's grandfather was shot down the lane at, beside Cahill Brewer Street. So, and uh, all my years uh, growing up, we always bought her suits in Kingston's, which was Cahill's father's shop, further down beside, near, close to the Savoy Cinema. So it was all, uh, it was more significant to me in that name sense, the name Cahill Brewer, than Collins. Because like, as Carol has described, the silence, my mother being a, a teacher with a large cross-section of, of students in Cahill Brewer, you, you couldn't very well be talking about points of view on uh, Collins or, for that matter, Cahill Brew or anyone else, because it was very sensitive during all those years. And growing up, was there a... Were you very aware of your background and the role 
um, that had been played? Was it something that was spoken about within the family? No, it wasn't. Uh, until I became apprentice as a solicitor to my uncle, my mother's younger brother, Liam Collins, in Clonakilty, and spent four years coming and going from there. I was in UCD at the same time, but uh, learning the legal business. Uh, I then, of course, became totally interested in that. My, I was living with my grandfather, Johnny Collins, and his second wife, Nancy O'Brien, who was one of Michael Collins' more famous spies in the GPO, because my direct grandmother had died in 1921, Kathy Hurley, who was a who was a sister of Jack Hurley, who was the only corpman killed in 1916 uh, in Dublin. Oh, yeah. So the, there were a number of uh, direct connections. But once we came into the whole Clannacilty milieu, then that became a, a lifelong thing for me. But I did come back to Dublin, but I was involved then. And my, uh, my two sisters, uh, who were both politicians, uh, Mary Benatti and Nora Owen, they were... They were sort of associated then during as politicians with, yeah. with that side of the of the family so that was the connection but Cahill Cahill Brewer the, the Cahill Brewer who is here I, I, I should say the 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 Cahill Brewer <laughs> Rory in, in between was was uh, absolutely wonderful and he's one of the huge motivators along with Ty Crowley being descended from the the whole Boland, Boland side of the family was very much because as we grew up, the the Jerry Boland lived. We were in Clontarf in Styles Road, Clontarf, and Jerry Boland lived on the Hoth Road. And my mother knew the sister there, who was in in the vocational education thing. But we we wouldn't dream of going over and knocking on the door of the Boland's house, and nor coming over to to knock on the door uh, of on the base Mahanese. of family histories. Uh, yes, it, it was then. And that's why, particularly with Cahill and with Ty being w- within the group that Carol and, and the Fawcett's gathered together, they were the most significant, in my view, of, of having them both in there because they were both so well-known, so connected in many ways with, with uh, Collins and everything involved, uh, you know, both of them, uh, Cahill Brew and uh, Harry Boland. Once they were here, the whole thing was gelling much more significantly, I think. I'm with you. Carl, could I have a quick word with you? Um, naturally, Carl Brewer was your grandfather, and the perception was that in, in terms of the split that occurred uh, after the treaty, he was regarded as one of those who was very much implacably against it, even though I suppose he, he didn't have a chance to, to, to develop that because unfortunately he died pretty quickly. Were you always aware in your family of the background and, and, and that was something growing up? Well, I was, uh, particularly because I was given the name Carl Brewer, uh, which kind of means that you can't avoid it, you know. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but uh, my other grandfather's Terence McSweeney, so, yeah. so you have two. But both of them have an interesting background in that Terence McSweeney's mother was a Mary Wilkinson, a Catholic from London. So she brought a different element into the whole culture. Uh, Carl Brewer's, he was, he was originally he was Charles St. John Burgess. So he was part of a family of Burgesses who had bought land in Carlo some hundreds of years previously. So what they both had in common was that they had actually mixed backgrounds. And as a consequence, uh, it was surprising for them both having gone through school, which was, you know, British school, English educated, then suddenly somebody said, by the way, 
there's another culture here. And they're kind of both together and simultaneously, but in one in Dublin, the other in Cork, they were shocked by this. And they went to find out about this, this other culture, this Gaelic, Irish culture, and so on. So they both got interested in history, even though they were both in business, they, were, they both got interested in history. And Carl Brewer studied the whole thing about divide and rule. And he, if you like, became obsessed with the, the reverse of it, which is unite and reconcile. But he saw the treaty as a mistake because Munster was already independent. And if you're going to go back into the British Empire, does that mean they're going to be forced back in? That's a divide and rule. He said, this is not a good idea. So he was ahead in saying that sort of thing to people. Now, of course, because he said it would be a disaster and then it turned out to be a disaster, then there was a lot of criticism of him and blaming him for all of these things, even the Civil War. He, he took a very difficult position. He disagreed with both sides, <laughs> vehemently disagreed yeah. with both sides. And the whole thing is this would be a shame. And then on the day that he actually went into the Hamlin buildings, and there's been a great play recently called Hamlin all about that, on the day he, he went in, when he was leaving home, he said, I don't know where I am going. But basically his intent was to go in and try and stop it, you know, which is disagreeing with both sides. Now, when this happened to Frank Aiken, somebody said, you know, where are you? I'm in the middle of the road. And they said, well, cars coming from both sides are going to hit you, you know. <laughs> so anyway, uh, uh, he thought incorrectly that it, there was a chance of stopping it. Anyway, his legacies continued on. And Michael Lomant, he has made mention of it. Uh, so uh, his son, Rory, was involved in politics, but like his father, wasn't really a politician in the proper sense of the word. He spent all his time trying to work on the, uh, on the Northern Ireland situation. So he's a Northern Ireland spokesman for Fianna Fáil and developed policies on that sort of thing. And he spent more of his time up in, in the north, not trying to unite Ireland, the 32 counties, trying to actually reconcile the people. And so when it came 50 years ago to a lot of these commemorations and the start of those things and masses and so on, my father organised a Collins Brewer Mass in Dublin Castle, where we actually got together. And this is how we got together with you, Michael O'Mahony and all of those. And that's what we went to as children, which was later called the, the Civil War Mass. And the remaining soldiers from both sides actually lined up together and marched. And I was a young fellow at the time. I could see... You know, 300 the first time, and then by the time it was fizzling out, it was down to about 10. And so it was reconciling, and this is what we were all about. So one of the roundtables that, that we organised was uh, because Carl Brewer, Michael Collins, Harry Boland, Arthur Griffith, and then sometime later Erskine Childers died, you know, in a short space of time. So I, I said, how about have a visualisation uh, of... Erskine Chillers, who died in November, the others were on the summer. How about he's arriving into heaven, he's not really sure what he's going to find. So how about a visualisation of a discussion with the descendants of all five? Right. So how are things? Are you surprised to meet us? Actually, we're all good friends. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So now, what's the news? We tell you the news. And that's the sort of thing that we developed in the, in the idea of the round tables. And, and the idea is that we want to extend this whole concept of uh, reconciliation. And the idea of people who 
don't necessarily have a huge amount dividing them, but they just happen to not have talked to their neighbour across the road because she's a woman or he's black or he's Fine Gael or he's Sinn Féin or he's gay or whatever it is. And say, I don't feel comfortable. You know, maybe they won't treat me. Go across the road, knock on the door. How are you? This is the day of reconciliation. Can I shake your hand? And you kind of think, boom, maybe this door will be slammed closed, or maybe not. But just, just very briefly, your, your, your own family, I mean, as you say, your two ancestors, but I, even by the standards of what went on and everything, iconic to the extent Terence McSweeney always remained so on the basis of, of, of the way he sacrificed his life. And then Carl Brewer what was viewed as being, um, and as you, as you point out, but just in terms of the way popular culture may have viewed him as being one of the hard men of the anti-treaty side. Now, you've laid out exactly why he wasn't. But there's a lot of history there within one family. There is, but that is true. And there is, but remember that Terence McSweeney's parents, they had, you know, three sons, four daughters and so on. But my mother is the only descendant. So there were four women Two, Mary and Annie, ran the school in Cork, and two were nuns and emigrated. And Terence's brothers, Sean and Peter, one came back from America, the other from Canada, but they never actually married. So my mother's the only descendant of that family. We don't have cousins on that side. Right. And in the case of Carl Brewer, five daughters and one son. So you had the only son marrying the only child right. of these two people. Now, they have to work very well together in the in the dolls. So when things were really difficult in the 20s, you know, and uh, well, you didn't really have a lot of friends uh, around. And apart from that, um, there was a sense that we that the, the Brewers weren't Republican enough for some people. Right. You know, I mean, in the time in the 60s, you know, when all the trouble was in, in, in the north and I was in Club Acondra and I was chatting away with somebody and he got to know who, who I am. And he thought, because of who I was, I should be up with a gun in the north. Yeah, yeah. And he got really angry with me and he said, if you were twice the man you are, you wouldn't be half the man your grandfather was. And I was up in the north. I was up in the north. We were talking to pros and we were talking to, to loyalists. And there's not that much different. They're good people, you know. So that, the, that's the crack that we were doing. The contested history, of course, is always going to be there, no question. Um, just coming back to the, the day of reconciliation and Michael, yourself as well, how has that advanced and how would you like to see it advance from here? Well, Carol has been the main uh, writer of letters to the government and to the committee that we, Cahill and I, attended just to, as a, if you like, a small visual manifestation of reconciliation. Uh, but Carol was the one who was pressing it. It's, it's very important that the Day of Reconciliation is taken over as a state organization because we're all transient uh, ships in the night in a sense and that it, it should become part of the calendar of of it. it just reflecting what Cahill said and what uh, many people have done but still you will know make from Cork and from Kerry and other places there's still this deep trauma if you will of uh, splits and so on that are there which are very destructive and I, I've seen it over the years and therefore the silence that Carl described uh, of 
between people who are in some way connected with one side or the other. It is better to be silent rather than to create a row which uh, is harmful to, to everyone concerned because either you're, you're saying, well, do you pull back from your, your point of view or there's no room uh, if there's emotion overlay in it. And that's what we're endeavouring to do, that this day of reconciliation allows people, as Cahill said, it's so visual, of going across the road to a fifth-generation person who was on pro or anti-treaty and say, may I shake your hand? And it's, it's allowed on the day of reconciliation. So that's, the, that's just the concept. That, but Carol is better able to talk about how she presents this to the government, to Michal Martin and to others who have been involved yeah. in, in various aspects of, of, of this. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Carol, just, just to come back to you, it is, uh, just in the first instance before actually the, the, the specifics of reconciliation, it is fairly, well, it would strike me as being fairly unique in terms of developed democracies that the, the occasion that effectively led to the birth of the state is treated with such silence. And even as you said in the decade of commemorations, there was very little around it. I, you know, looking at it from the outside, it would take you back a small bit that it's as if the country, even 100 years on, can come to terms with the achievement that was uh, attained during those negotiations and the subsequent treaty. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think and we think that how the decade of centenaries was handled, the approach that was taken was very helpful at least it, it produced conversations, discussions, talking, whatever. But there needs to be a next step. It's It can't just end there. We've learned so much. We've developed um, uh, our understanding of what happened. There are so many perspectives that still, still exist. But the idea of reconciliation needs to be broadened out even to, than to just the healing as a consequence of what happened 100 years ago. And I think with Ireland changing with the demographics, with new Irish, like we have 12% of our population not born in Ireland. Wow, there are thousands of new Irish coming from all kinds of backgrounds, trauma, famine, war, etc. And we have learned so much through our work from um, 1921 onwards and how it was handled. And our approach was person-centred, the stories, the non-political, inclusive. That approach could be used to reconcile, to bring people's the different different perspectives together. And, and it could be broadened out and could become something really big. And we Irish are really good working in diplomacy, we're good, very good at peacekeeping. You can see it even with Gaza now. You can see Michal Martin and you can see Leah Radger and what the, how they're presenting things. We have, we have the history behind us. We have the experience behind us between our colonization, our famines, our war of independence, our civil war, our, our domination by the Catholic Church and, 
how things changed after the famine, etc. We've, we've learnt an awful lot. We need to put it to good use. It's the natural step after the decade of centenaries to actually promote reconciliation. Reconciliation, understanding and peace. And extend it, not just to those who suffered harm and felt different and felt isolated and, and felt othered. Even Protestants in the south of Ireland today talk about the sense of difference and othering. It hasn't gone away. These feelings are still very much um, percolating below the surface. And to channel what we learned, how to manage the complexity of the decade of St. Henry, the awful stories, the civil war, brother against brother, sister against sister, etc. How we manage that, the learnings from that, we need to corral that into having a people stay by the people, for the people, about the people. It's not led by politicians, but led by the state. And would you envisage it as, for instance, a, a holiday? Or would you envisage just as a specific day? Where as a specific day, a set day in the year that is set aside for people to to talk, to greet one another, to get to know one another, to the new immigrant family, the people from abroad, the whatever, to use it to start the conversation. Because we've lost, I think, the art of conversation and just ordinary chit-chat and social conversation is ebbing away. It's now Zoom, online, etc. Conversation is critical. And it's through conversation that we make connections with others. And we learn to hear them listen to their stories, hear what they have to say, and step into their shoes and understand. And it's a way, reconciliation, understanding and peace, instead of the othering that we're living with. And we think it's badly needed. It's a day set aside that's specific. It's a day for healing, for getting to know, for understanding. Look at our, look at our, um, the darkness into light. Uh, yeah. That started because of the shame around suicide. Absolutely, yeah. And people were afraid and felt to blame and loved ones passing, etc. Now it's st- it started in a very small way. Now it's international. It's yeah. not just in Ireland. Darkness into light. Very simple. But our annual People's Day of Reconciliation must be state-led. And, and it, it, can, it can work down through the councils, the members of the Oireachtas, the schools, the communities, drill right down. We, we did outlines, give some ideas to the expert advisory group. That was the first time we were able to, to verbalise our idea for an annual People's Day of Reconciliation. We did put it to the Taoiseach, we did put it to the leaders of the, the various political parties, but the, the meeting before the expert advisory group in, in October was the first time to put flesh on the bones, and we were able to introduce the idea to accompany the annual People's Day of Reconciliation of a Peace Award. And Tig Crowley, who's here, the Friendship Cup that was given to Harry Boland, which rests in Washington Embassy, maybe Tig could speak to that. It could be accompanied by such an award and become... The world needs reconciliation. Talk about reconciliation. We talk about health issues, literature, festivals for this, that and the other. But reconciliation is needed today more than ever. Yeah. Ty Coakley, Harry Boland was, am I correct, your granduncle? He was my granduncle. Your granduncle. Yes, yeah. So he died. There's no direct descendant, sadly, as yeah. in the case of Michael Collins as well, obviously. That's right, yeah. yeah. And, and, of course, the Boland family had a long association subsequently with Fianna Fáil. 
Yes, um, and subsequently outside of Fianna Fáil. Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so Don't you, even you, go in near that. Exactly, <laughs> we yeah. We won't yeah. cover that one tonight. No, no, but, um, but talk to me about this, what, what, what Carl mentioned there. Well, well, that's just one component. I, I was introduced to this group and I found it very interesting. The intergenerational trauma was a very interesting aspect, which we covered earlier. I think in my family it was less so because Harry Boland specifically uh, his deathbed instructions to his sister, my grandmother, was that there be no uh, retribution uh, and didn't want the family to find out who who mortally wounded him in, in Scary. So I think in the family, this history was more spoken about and that enabled subsequent generations to relate to it in a positive way. And maybe as, as a result of that, the artefacts that were handed down across the generations and ended in my mother's, my late mother's possession, we wanted to put them in a public forum and do it in a positive and constructive manner. So this uh, cup, silver cup that was awarded to him in New York just before he came back to participate in the treaty debates and obviously was opposed to the treaty, it, uh, it was awarded to him by one of these Irish-American groups and beautiful cup passed down through the family. So it's now sitting in the Irish Embassy in Washington. And our suggestion was that something like that, a beautiful artefact from 100 years ago, could be used as uh, an annual peace award to be given by the state or a, an independent committee of some description to a person who's made an outstanding contribution to peace and reconciliation. And it really fits with what Carol has been saying that, you know, Ireland has a, a huge contribution to make in this area. And that would be a way to to make it a concrete and recurring, recurring annual event, uh, which would sit very well with the sort of annual People's Day of Reconciliation that, that our group is promoting and advocating. Absolutely. And um, just sort of listeners, we have a whole room full of people here, all, all, all part of, um, of the group. Would anybody else like to say anything in, in, in this vein? Edith. Edith, will you just tell us who, you, who your ancestors were? Oh, sorry, was? Edith Sigara. My father was Kevin O'Shiel, who was uh, briefly uh, a legal advisor to the treaty group. And my grandfather was Smitty, who became the first minister uh, playing potentially to Washington from 24 to 29. And my father had very close relations with Collins because he was his proxy for Northern Ireland. He was one of the few Northerners involved. And like Tyg's family, was always for uh, reconciliation, but became very bitter over the Civil War. And that, uh, when my father was writing his memoirs, every time he had angina, and he told my mother that every time he wrote Devalera's name, he got another attack. <laughs> but what, uh, one thing I wanted to emphasise, what Carol has already said, this uh, enterprise was people-centred, and it was not just the leading players. The fact that we yes. traced the families and met the descendants of one of the waiters, for example, at the book launch through the good offices of, of Bernard here. And I think we also see this Day of Reconciliation starting small, but uh, very much grassroots and fun on a Sunday in the summer when the weather is usually better than St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> <laughs> we get another holiday. Carl, just... We, we do have a day. You do? You have a day in mind? We have a day. Go on, tell us. Sunday, the 2nd of June. Now, the next day is a bank holiday, so this is not going to be a bank holiday. Yeah, yeah. In other words, uh, people are free on a Sunday, sunny weather, children are out, and uh, let's go out on the green and just shake hands with somebody. 
Just will you tell us? You, I, I so get, I'm Richard Fawcett. I'm a cousin of Carol. Yeah. And our, we, our mutual grandfather was Dermot Fawcett, yeah. who was, as Carol uh, explained earlier, um, was in the treaty delegation. Um, my role over the last few years has just been sort of an organiser of this group, uh, sort of chairing meetings for the last, I mean, it must be four years almost, I'd say. Um, and uh, we've come to a, a, a stage in our mutual relationship there where that we've, we've, we've done everything that we possibly could to remember the people who came before. But actually what we need to now do is focus on what's coming at in the future. We, we, you know, we're not going to be around forever. Our little group isn't going to be around forever. Fundamentally, um, we, we, we've done what we can, but we need to leave it with a little bit of a legacy. And, uh, I, I, you know, my, my own family comes from two sides. My, my mother's family are Protestant, landowning from the south, uh, and my father's family was, you know, very Republican, very Republican. And, um, you know, bringing those two, those two histories into genetically into producing me and my siblings, the, the people who were given this sort of legacy of the, the archive of, of documents from the 1920s. My mother um, uh, did the very uh, generous thing of saying that she insisted that that go to, the, to somewhere that it was going to be of most use to the nation. So uh, she, she being the Protestant at the last laugh of saying that she was going to put this away from the family and, and, and uh, put a legacy there in that, in that sense. So with respect to the, the um, People's Day of Reconciliation, really... Um, anybody who's got uh, uh, something they're carrying, they need to offload it and have an opportunity to offload it safely with um, potentially the people that they may be carrying it against. Or, or feel that they've got things against them that they, they need to resolve. You, know, you, have to meet, you have to meet your, uh, your fears. And you know, once you meet them, often they're not real things at all. I joked earlier about, you know, we could, ha we could all get around a, uh, a baron. Uh, uh, well, we could, go by, we could get around a, a pair of, uh, you know, traditional uh, bagpipes. That's just as equally. Or we could play a fife or we could yeah. have a march. We talk about doing things small. Actually, do we have to do things small, really? Is it, can we not do things together from all sides of all communities and actually recognize that, uh, you know, Traditionally, this country has been, uh, it's an island. Everybody who's on this island came from somewhere. You know, we do it. Um, and um, and, and uh, the other thing that uh, I've, I've never told anybody in this room is that, you know, the 2nd of June is my birthday. So having a, having a, having a people's there day on my birthday would be absolutely fantastic. I thank you all for it. Great stuff. Um, anybody else? Edith Segarra, who was professor of German for many years in Trinity College, is a great writer of many books, but her role in putting that book together was so vital, it's, it's uh, unbelievable. And it, it was the kernel of, I mean, I, I'm very proud to be in some small way associated with a book that was identifying, because it's, it's hard to imagine when everyone remembers the five plenipotentiaries by name, but there were some over 70 yeah. people in various shapes and forms over in, in various security, advisory, uh, 
catering, you name it, they were there. Now that's, that's something that hasn't been fully pinpointed in a, in a sense it is in microcosm there and maybe Ida would mention her long journey into, into night in, in working on that book. Yeah. I'd like to mention uh, it was uh, written by the whole group, but there were two editors, Fiona uh, Fawcett and myself. All right, and if I, I have to say it is, it's definitely a book that I'd, I'd have to recommend to anybody because it makes fascinating reading. And the point you make, Michael, about how many people were involved beyond the plenty of centuries, uh, I, I think is, um, is very well made as well. Bernard. Bernard Barton. I'm not a direct descendant of, of Robert, but I, I knew him, and there is an ancestral connection. Uh, but um, the one thing I would like to... Sorry, Robert Barton's family, uh, his two brothers were killed in the First World War. He married late himself, and his two sisters never married, so that branch of the family has died out. But um, the only thing I want to add, I would like to add to this, is that it's very much our attention, intention, behind this entire project, that it's national, it's nationwide. Yeah. We, are in t- we're, we are hoping that this concept will be adopted not just in the south, but in the north as well, because their reconciliation is just as necessary between unionists and nationalists. It is something which is seriously uh, to be pursued, I think, between those two communities. Absolutely, and I think it's something that it certainly... <sighs> should be pursued and I have to say coming out of a group such as yourselves and and, and the significance of what ancestors were involved in and the significance of what happened after the signing of the treaty I think it's I think it's a fantastic idea and uh, hopefully it's going to be pursued at state level and hopefully pretty soon it would be a very uh, It'd be a very fitting memorial to the establishment of the state, if nothing else. And as you say, notwithstanding, as Bernard pointed out, it would be a, a, an island-wide uh, occasion with a bit of luck. Yes. Thank you all very much for talking to us today. Thank you. Thanks. That's it, folks. I think it'll be very interesting to see where this might go. And I have to say, you know, I think you'd have to agree that it's an intriguing concept that could be a big addition to our annual calendar and anything in that vein for all the different reasons that were laid out by the people you heard there I think um, you'd have to say it would be something positive okay well that's it for this week Um, I'd like to thank our engineer JJ Vernon thank you for listening take care of yourselves we'll talk to you again next week Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.